And he and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Mark chapter 1, verse 13. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please um, open our ears and our hearts to receive your word. Please grow us up into the stature of your Son, Jesus, through the food of your word. And please bless me to preach truthfully and usefully for your beloved people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, So as should be uh, patently obvious, we have begun Lent, 40 days, which are um, designed in the number to correspond to the 40 days in which Christ was tempted in the wilderness, right after he had been baptized by John. St. Mark's account is really brief, right? He just went into the wilderness, was tempted, mentions the wild beasts, um, and that's it. And we obviously get a lot more information about the last day of his temptation in St. Matthew's Gospel, you know, the specific things that Satan comes at him with, with the scriptures. Um, But we must remember that Matthew's just recording the temptations that came on the last day. He was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Christ's temptation, and to be more specific, his resisting of temptation, has a proving effect, the same way those of you who are into bread baking, you sometimes prove yeast to make sure it's alive, right? It proves, it shows forth to us that Jesus was indeed, exactly as he has been claimed to be, perfect and sinless, and had faced every temptation and resisted those temptations, spotless. This is why, um, and the reason that the evangelists exhibit Jesus' righteousness in this regard, because there were no human witnesses to Jesus' temptation, right? He must have relayed what had happened. He was alone in the desert to his apostles, who then got written down in the Gospels. The reason they are there is, I think, twofold. Um, The first is to show clearly that Christ is perfectly righteous so that we can understand that when he dies on the cross, It is as a perfect offering, fully satisfying to the Father, a righteous offering, as we heard St. Peter say in the epistle we just heard well read. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Christ died for us. It's exhibiting his perfect righteousness to us. Righteousness in the face of temptation, like we all face. And um, thus, in the same way that it's establishing for us, the righteousness of Jesus, so we can understand the perfection of his own death on the cross. Just so Lent is our preparatory time for Holy Week and the remembrance annually in particular of his death and his resurrection. Also, I believe we're presented with this um, moment in, that would have been hidden in the life of Christ, but exhibited to us in the Gospels to show us that a chain of 4,000 years of disobedience since Adam has now been broken. That for 4,000 years, every human being ever had been tempted and fallen into temptation, and we call that sin. But Jesus has now broken that chain. And if this were by example, it would be impressive, but not encouraging to us. But it's encouraging because the Holy Spirit who lives within each of us, each of you who've been baptized, 
is called in the scriptures the Spirit of Christ. So the one who vanquished Satan face to face lives within you by his Holy Spirit. He who has the power to conquer sin has taken up residence in your soul. That's the encouragement. And so with that in mind, and that's where we're going to end in just a couple of minutes, I want to just zoom in a little bit on the phenomenon of temptation. It's, the, it's um, arguably the area in which our Christian life is proved, as yeast is proved. It's fairly easy to be a Christian when you're not feeling tempted and when all things are kind of going peacefully and swimmingly. And It's temptation that reveals um, where our allegiance will lie, with God or against Him. And it's important, I think, to take time to think about even also the devil's role in temptation. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we would not be outwit- outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the first thing I want to say um, is a truism, but worth repeating, is the important distinction between temptation and sin. There's a line between those two things, right? Being tempted is itself not sin. Jesus was tempted, but the Bible is very clear in several places. He is without sin. Temptation is not sin. And yet, I think we can go um, one layer more precise under the, with the guidance of, I think, perhaps one of the greatest, um, one of the Christian pastors read some of the deepest insights into the workings of our inner selves, how we work in, as humans, as Christians, and that's Gregory the Great um, in the 6th century. He offers us a framework that I have found uh, incredibly helpful in my own awareness of temptation and sin in my own life. And he he presents it off of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And while he believed and taught that as a literal history, he also found a moral picture in it, in this. He, He makes, rather than just a twofold distinction between temptation and sin, he makes a threefold distinction between suggestion, delight, and consent, and then consent is, is sin. And I, I think this threefold, slightly more precise sort of um, diagnostic scheme is really true and very useful. I should just say true and very useful. And he maps it on. The suggestion, of course, in the picture is Satan whispering the bad idea of disobedience. And he reads Adam and Eve as sort of a composite whole of humanity, like together. They are, they are human, human being existed as male and female. And he says, it's just like that in us. We, we, are, we have Adam and Eve kind of both within us that there's this moment of delight when the apple or the fruit looks good to the eyes. And then there's the consent. There's sort of the, the sensory kind of fleshly sort of interest and intrigue followed by jumping in with both feet with the will. Kind of imaged in a metaphoric way in, in Eve and Adam. And whereas we would draw the line kind of by instinct, if we think about, well, when is it sin? We would usually say, well, when you've consented with your mind, which often would lead to action, but even just consent of the mind is sin, as the Lord said, right? If you look with lust in your eye at a woman, it's adultery, right? The sin of the mind is sin. We would still draw the line at consent when you jump in with your will. But Gregory says, quoting from um, a letter exchange he had with the very first Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, Augustine, He says, when the flesh has begun to take delight, then sin has its commencement. When there's that moment of fleshly delight, of sort of interest in the the presented temptation, 
That's when the game is already being lost and sin has begun. I want to take a really nerdy but important aside. This relates to the lingering brokenness within us. Even we who are baptized, we still have our, our, our desires are bent and disordered. Um, there's this imprint still, of, even though we've been forgiven the guilt of original sin by our baptism, the sort of mark of original sin, this sort of brokenness is out the fact that we want the wrong things and we want the right things in the wrong way. And the theologians have given us a word for that. They call it concupiscence. It's a funny sounding word, but a useful word. This sort of bentness in our souls, concupiscence. And for the record, Christ did not have concupiscence. He was born without sin, without original sin, perfectly innocent. Um, And it's really meaningful to me that in our Anglican formularies, the 39 articles, it says concupiscence has the nature of sin. And this is exactly the wisdom of Gregory the Great. I know this is very nerdy, it's almost over. This is exactly the wisdom of Gregory the Great. Um, the concupiscence, it's different than sin, but it kind of is like it. And that subtle distinction, if you think about it, ends up being quite important in the Christian life. Okay, nerdy aside over. Um, the reason that we uh, practice exercises of self-denial in Lent abstaining from the luxury foods or from some other thing that has kind of swept us up too much in the world. The reason we do that is to try and kind of refocus and recalibrate our radar, our moral radar for ourselves to become resensitized to those subtle movements of the soul of the difference of when a thought is presented and when I'm kind of delighting in it and then consenting to it. And to become a bit more freshly aware year by year of, oh, I, I actually sort of, that thought crossed my mind, and I kind of savored it, its taste for a moment. I didn't spit it out right away. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry for that. To repent of that brokenness in ourselves that would linger over a presented temptation. And in particular, and this is really the, where I want to land, and really the pater of Lent, awareness is really um, the small, a small piece of the pie the larger piece, in that moment of awareness to then cry out to Jesus for help. That's what it's all about. In the moment of the presented temptation, to be aware that I would be about, I'm about to delight in that. Lord Jesus, please save me from this, from this sin. Save me from giving in to this temptation. Rescue me from this sin. To pray that in the moment. And I promise you, and I bear truth witness from experience, every time you pray that, he will rescue you. We fall into sin when we forget in our worldliness to pray that. But if you pray, Lord, rescue me from this temptation, he always, always, always will. Ten million Christians in heaven will testify to that truth. So the purpose of all these exercises of fasting from alcohol and chocolates and giving up these things, they aren't just to try and become sort of semi-Stoics. They're to sharpen our moral sensibilities so we can catch the movements of our heart when we start to delight in what is disordered or delight in a disordered way, or give in to temptation in even the smallest way, and cry out, Jesus, help me. I testify to experience, um, and I assert fully, that you, by yourself, can never resist temptation. I can never resist temptation. There is one who can, Jesus, and he showed it to us when he looked at Satan face to face, 40 days in the wilderness. 
His power is yours and lives within you if you would only call on Him as help. And that's what these exercises are about, to remind, to open up the sort of channel of, of, of mindfulness to call out to Him in prayer. And in doing so, that's when we get to experience what we describe to be true about the Christian life, that Jesus is our Savior. Not only that he's rescued us from the penalty of our sins in the next life, but he's also our rescuer actively in this life. That when someone says, you know, uh, are you saved by Jesus? You could say, oh yes, this morning when I prayed to help and he rescued me from temptation, I was rescued, I was saved by Jesus. He rescues us from sins we have committed, from their eternal punishments. He rescues us from committing sins when we cry out to him and are able to follow in his footsteps only by his help. And in so doing, the end of all these things, we get to grow nearer to Jesus in that familiar relationship, an intimate relationship of experiencing him as our helper and then having gratitude for him helping us and knowing his nearness in the midst of every temptation, which he himself has faced. No temptation is foreign to him. The book of Hebrews is really clear about that. Anything you can experience, no matter how bizarre, no matter how oppressive, no matter how um, heavy and painful, any temptation, he has experienced the very depth of it, overcame it, and now through his spirit living within you, has given us the means to face down temptation as well. All glory to him, our Savior, and our help. Amen.